Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the Debian packaging flaw that leaves your server exposed. We go over the state of the internet report and hacking 27% of the web. Plus your great questions, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 294 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on Turkey Day, November 24th. 2016, at least here in the U.S. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Over at ScaleEngine.com, you should go check them out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Happy Thursday. Hello, everybody. Thanks for watching. Happy average normal every other Thursday to you, Alan. Yep. (laughs) So today's episode is one of those where Alan is like super prepared and uh, I'm looking forward to this because normally like uh, I would have jumped in and read through the entire doc by now, but I have had a heck of a morning. So this is all fresh for me. So it looks like we're going to start with Akamai. Are you ready to uh, jump right in? Tell me about it. Okay, so Akamai has published their latest quarterly State of the Internet report. I think we've talked about them once or twice before. Mm -hmm. What makes this one special is that they had permission from Krebs to go into detail about the knowledge service attack they mitigated against his website. Oh, interesting. You know, the the big Mario one that caused all the the fracas. Yes. So, yes, uh, Internet infrastructure giant Akamai last week released a special State of the Internet report. Normally, the quarterly accounting of noteworthy changes in distributed denial-of-service attacks doesn't delve into attacks on specific customers, right? They always edit out the details, so you never know who the attacks were against. Uh, But this latest Akamai report makes an exception in describing in great detail the record-sized attack against Krebs on security in September, Hmm. the largest such assault that they had ever mitigated. Right. That was huge. Huge. Yeah. Uh, so Akamai says, uh, the same data we've shared here was made available to Krebs for his own reporting, and we received permission to name him and his site in the report. That's cool. Uh, so Akamai said the attack on September 20th was launched by just uh, 24,000 infected systems, uh, whereas we heard there were as many as like 500,000 machines infected with this botnet. Yeah. You're talking, wait, so you're saying it, it wasn't 500,000, it was 24? Yeah. They're, they're, uh, they only, in the end, it looks like there were only 24,000 machines that were actually used in the attack that was at large, meaning if there are hundreds of thousands of them, that the attack could be much, much bigger. Now, it might be that they just picked the 24,000 that had the biggest connections. I don't know. Uh, at this point, it's a little unclear how many attacks they had done before this one to actually know the capability of their own botnet. Okay. They might not have known that they could do that much bandwidth. And so on. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the 24,000 machines were mostly uh, hacked Internet of Things devices like digital video recorders and security cameras. They say, uh, the first quarter of 2016 marked a high point in the number of attacks uh, peaking at more than 100 gigabits. Uh, they say this trend was matched in Q3 of 2016 with another 19 mega attacks. It's interesting that while the overall number of attacks fell by 8% quarter over quarter, the number of large attacks as well as the size of the biggest attacks grew significantly. So we actually see uh, a slightly smaller number of attacks, but the ones that there were were bigger. They say uh, the magnitude of attacks uh, seen during the final weeks uh, were significantly larger than the majority of attacks uh, Akamai sees on a regular basis. 
In fact, while the attack on September 20 was the largest attack ever mitigated by Akamai, the attack on September 22nd would have qualified for that record at any other time. Uh, so the one on the 20th was over 600-something gigabits, but the one on the 22nd was 555. So that would have been the biggest if mm. it, the record hadn't been stolen two days before. <laughs> um, what was interesting is that Akamai uh, speculated that uh, they also, uh, uh, Chris showed a graphic of it a minute ago, uh, a plot of the history of attacks against Krebs over the last four years. And uh, they just wondered, you know, do the big spikes in that maybe correspond to specific stories? Uh, so Krebs has made that data available as a CSV, uh, saying an observant reader can probably correlate clumps of attacks to specific stories covered by Krebs. Uh, reporting on the dark side of cybercrime uh, draws attention from people and organizations who are not afraid of using denial of service attacks to silence their detractors. So he says, in case any trenchant observer wishes to actually attempt that correlation, they've published a CSV file of all the attacks, uh, which lists the date, duration, size, and type of attack used in the various uh, attack campaigns against Krebs over the past four years. So it'd be really interesting to see if there are specific stories yeah. that spark specific attacks. Yeah. Yeah, that's just what I was thinking. And uh, how much you want to bet the answer is yes. <laughs> I'd bet some. I'd bet a steak on it. Not a turkey dinner, though. Not a Thanksgiving turkey dinner. <clears throat> this is great when uh, somebody who reports on it is the victim in a sense, because then he's willing to maybe give us a little more insights into it. Yeah. Uh, and then there's some comments about the specific attack against Krebs' site uh, in the report. They say, uh, we haven't seen GRE, which is... Uh, I forget what that stands for now. It's something. Oh, something we know what like, it stands for. Hold on. I'm going to Google I, real I quick. know what it stands for. I'm just blanking on it just this second. Graduate record examination? <laughs> nope. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Wikipedia it's, says. Uh, no, it's gateway. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. No, generic routing encapsulation. Yeah, okay. Not, gen- not graduate uh, record examinations. So <laughs> normally, the way services like Akamai work is they actually. Um, the IP address you see when you try to go to Krebs is actually an Akamai address. So all traffic goes to various Akamai nodes all over the world. Uh, then they scrub the traffic, and only only the traffic that they think is legitimate actually gets sent back to uh, Krebs' real web server over a GRE tunnel. So the attackers actually using GRE is actually kind of interesting. This is, uh, we haven't seen GRA play a major role in attacks until now. It's basically just a UDB plug with a Layer 7 component targeting the GRE infrastructure. So while it's not new, it is actually kind of rare. Uh, so that's kind of interesting about it. Hmm. Uh, they say, overall, uh, also, a Columbia was the top source of attack traffic. This is surprising uh, because... Columbia has not been a major source of attack traffic in the past. While Columbia only accounted for approximately 5% of the traffic in the Mario-based attacks, it accounted for nearly 15% of all source IPs in the last four attacks. A country that was suspiciously missing from the top 10 list was the U.S. Uh, But with regards to Mario, this may be due to just fewer people have those vulnerable devices in the U.S. than, say, in Colombia. Uh, rather than a, you know, a conscious decision on the part of the attackers to not use systems in the U.S. Well, and what systems are we talking about? Are we talking about Internet of Things or are we talking about all the yeah, XP boxes? So these, uh, these particular Internet of Things uh, uh, security camera devices. And it seems that the Chinese companies did a really good job of selling them in Colombia. Hmm. Right? Yeah. So. 
And yeah. I could, you know, that's, you forget when it's cameras, boy, the market for that's everywhere, right? So, yeah, that's, you, that's just, a, you know, companies uh, try specific things and end up uh, creating, you know, they end up finding a market in a particular country and doing a lot better there than off. elsewhere. Yep, yep. Yeah, so China also ranks pretty high. Look at that. In Q2 of 2016, China 56% of uh, the source of DDoS attacks. So China does rank pretty high as well. Yep. Hmm. Interesting, Mr. Jude. What else? Yeah, I thought that was interesting. <clears throat> Is that it for the story? Uh, nope. Sorry. Okay. Uh, stray. Anyway. <laughs> I was like, uh, <laughs> oh, well, maybe he's done then. Yeah. Nope. Uh, no, I got like a whole lot more to go here. <laughs> anyway, um, there are a few distinctive programming characteristics we uh, initially discovered in the lab when they were uh, playing with the this particular attack. Oh, yeah? And later confirmed. Uh, so, so they made some suppositions about how Mario worked and what it was doing. But then eventually the source code came out and they were able to actually confirm their suspicions, uh, which has helped identify Mario Beast traffic. So they had some ideas that they thought, all right, if we see this particular thing, it looks like it's uh, definitely from Mario. Uh, but they weren't 100% sure, but they were able to prove it once the uh, details came out and they had the uh, um, source code. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. They say, uh, at the end of the day, what Maria really brings to the table is a reasonably well-written and extensible code base. It's unknown as to what Maria may bring in the foreseeable future, but it is clear that it paved the way for other malicious actors to create variants uh, that improve on the foundation that was already there. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it turns out Maria, on top of being open-sourced, was actually written in such a way that it was relatively easy to... Uh, augment and and keep going with hmm. <laughs> i see alan live updating show notes as he does the show <laughs> anyway so i have a link here so if you follow the link on krebs site to get this report from Akamai, they want a whole bunch of silly information and so on but i managed to actually get the url to the raw pdf file Ooh, and nice provide the link there so that you don't have to uh get phone calls from Akamai trying to sell you ddos protection yeah that's really cool. that's cool thanks uh, then I skimmed the rest of the report, the non-Krebs specific thing, yeah. and uh, found a couple other interesting details. They say, uh, last quarter we reported a 276% increase in NTP attacks compared to Q2 of 2015, uh, because about Q3 of 2015 is when the NTP thing really took off, I think. Uh, this quarter we analyzed NTP trends over two years and have noticed shrinking uh, capability for NTP reflection. Uh, hmm. So, in particular, that's good to see that the amount of uh, reflected NTP tax is falling off as people secure their NTP servers and we get away from having this problem. Hmm. Yeah, that's for sure, especially because it was taking off so fast initially. Now, do you think it's, do you think it's a matter of securing the NTP servers or do you think it's a matter of uh, ISPs and networks not allowing traffic that wasn't sourced from their network to go it's, out their network? It's definitely people securing NTP because hmm. BCP38 is not happening at all. Hmm. Um, now there's, uh, I forget the name of the group now, but there's a group that's been going around purposely doing like single packet reflection attacks against every IP address on NTP. Yeah. Find the ones that succeed and sending an email, uh, explaining hey there. what By the, the problem way. Is, how to fix it. <laughs> uh, so basically sending abuse complaints, uh, yeah. because I end up getting one, a customer server, the BMs, like the, the management interface, but you know, like the IPMI thing that's separate from the oh, actual sure, computer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, had a misconfigured NTP. Oh. 
uh, and was basically allowing a reflection attack. And there's just some, hey there, by the way, your fly's down. Might want to fix that kind yeah, of thing. Like, so, so in this case, it was actually when they got the report, the customer powered off their server to make sure it wouldn't be used as part of the attack until they could fix it. And that doesn't stop the BMC. So they're like, how can my server be attacking people? I turned it off. It's like, mm. well, it's the second computer in your computer mm-hmm. that's doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so firmware update solved that. Yeah. <laughs> huh. That's good. Good, good. Yeah, I was just looking at trying to, I was trying to look at how you sign up for the report right here because I wanted to see if I could yeah. display some of it. And oh my gosh, all the things. They want, Akamai wants to know all of the things. They want yeah. my, my job, my company, my email, my phone and number. When you try to type in your company, it even has autocomplete for a huge list of big companies. No way, really? That's yeah. awful. Let's see. Like, I, just, I just started typing random letters, and it, it was trying to autocomplete. It was like, DEF Germany, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what? I'm not on this list. Oh, no. I must be small. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, but anyway, they also found some interesting other trends. Oh, yeah? Uh, web attack metrics around the European Football Cup Championship game and the uh, Olympic Summer Games, uh, as analyzed in the web uh, application Attack Spotlight, show us that while malicious actors take advantage of high-profile events to do attacks and become famous or whatever, you know, trying to disrupt uh, major events, uh, there's also a lull that indicates they might actually like to watch the events. No. So if you, if you look at uh, page 26 of the report there, uh, the one that's actually labeled 26, it might not actually be 26 in the PDF. But, okay. I'm going to go, hold uh, on. I, oh, that's right. You linked it in the show notes. Jeez, I was sitting yeah. there trying to sign up for it like a dork. I forgot. <laughs> I have access to the show notes while the show's live. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, yep. I got it. Yeah. And which so, page? 26, um, you said? Yeah. Okay. Um, so during the uh, Olympic Summer Games in Brazil this uh, past summer, uh, they have a... a Oops graph of the number of attacks launched uh this quarter versus last quarter Boy, look at all these fancy graphics they have yeah. alan just about every damn page has nice oh lightning they got lightning strikes yeah. okay here you go i think this is probably the one you're looking for right Almost here there. Is nope. this, no this is 26 look at the bottom of the page oh yeah i'm not i'm going by the pdf counter all right yeah. and here you go here's 26. there it is so you see it's about the same between all the quarters and then all of a sudden in that middle one the number of attacks during the olympics from uh, being launched from Brazil when we down almost done. Turns out everybody in Brazil was at the Olympics. That, I guess that could be legit. It could, or yeah. or maybe they're maybe the maybe they. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe all, like all hmm. European hackers stop their activities while. But the, don't you the, think all the people the traveling there and visiting there, just the all of it, there would be more traffic. It almost makes me wonder if they did something at the country they, level. They, they were doing other things like targeting tourists instead of targeting uh, out outbound yeah, web applica- we, outside web apps, and they're going after people's Android or, devices and their local computers and laptops and. Yeah, or. <laughs> Maybe they just really wanted to watch the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so. I can definitely see a lot of European attackers uh, taking the time off to watch a, a big sports ball game. <laughs> nice. I suppose so. <laughs> yeah. uh, they also show that, um, application layer DDoS attacks. So actually doing things like, you know, uh, get head, post put type things. So basically you're trying to overwhelm not the network by sending too many requ- uh, too much traffic, mm-hmm. but actually trying to overwhelm individual applications, like mm-hmm. trying to take out the web server by just opening a whole bunch of connections and keeping them open. Or uh, one we saw recently was doing a post so that it would... Uh, all the regular requests where you're trying to read, read-only stuff from a website are all cached by the CDN. And so one attacker was basically doing a post that required a whole bunch of work done by the back end and that would go from all over the CDN, it would all go back to the actual origin servers and, and cause a lot of load. Hmm. 
Um, so, but anyway, uh, attacks are actually targeting the application layer and basically trying to break the web server or something or, or the application rather than just trying to, you know, flood the network and knock the whole machine offline accounted for only 1.66% of all denial of service attacks seen during the, this quarter. Wow. That's not, that's not, that's basically 98% of all attacks targeted the infrastructure layer. So basically just IP, TCP, UDP, and just trying to, that's surprising because that seems like it's actually takes more raw horsepower than just to go after a flaky application. A lot less, you know, generally you have to kind of customize an uh, application layer attack to target a specific application or server. And maybe even a version, potentially, of that application and server. Yes, and also, you know, with things like Amazon uh, auto-scaling or DigitalOcean or whatever, you can spin up more machines to handle the load. Now, that's a different kind of general service attack where you can actually take the website out by running up their, you know, bill, droplet bill by making them launch hundreds of droplets to be able to deal with the load or whatever. You know, uh, but you'd have, but, yeah, that seems like though, that's probably a pretty, I mean, you really have to go after somebody like on AWS or Rackspace to really. Yeah. Uh, but you know, how many startups are on, on AWS? You, you could definitely run a couple yeah. of startups out of money by just, uh, attacking them in a particular way. Uh, I'm trying to remember the one that I might have almost accidentally done that to. <laughs> really? Like, it was called like Wonderlist or something. I forget what it was, but they had a thing and, and you got points for clicking. And whoever clicked the most, they, were, they had like a top 10 leaderboard. Do you remember this? Hmm. It was a while ago. Anyway, my business partner and I started playing with it and using like 100 servers with different IP addresses to, to avoid their blocking and so on. And just got like millions of clicks by you know, faking out the way they were counting the clicks. Yeah. And <laughs> eventually we got an email. I was like, okay, okay, you win. Ah. You stop it. I don't think we were actually causing them to spin up more Amazon instances because we were careful not to, to send too many requests per second. But That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> you could easily do that in a couple of places. <laughs> and uh, interesting other thing they found is repeat DDoS attacks by target. After a slight downturn in QT of 2016, the average number of DDoS attacks increased to an average of 30 attacks per target, as shown in figure 2-13. I don't know which page that's on, but not a big deal. Uh, but they say this statistic reflects that once an organization has been attacked, there's a high probability that they will be attacked again. Hmm. In particular, they saw that, you know, oftentimes part of it might be that the attack starts and then stops and they wait a little bit and then they start it again, but also just means... Uh, that you know they might do it repeatedly. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I found that interesting as well. That might but, be because maybe you're uh, a group that has a. There's a group yeah, that focused has, on if, you. If there's a reason to attack you, then that reason probably doesn't go away after two days yeah. from their, uh, the end of the first attack. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, some of them are uh, ransom type things. Well, if if you pay the ransom, what? Why wouldn't they attack you again a week later and for an even higher ransom? <laughs> right. Uh, then lastly, looking at the actual um, application layer attacks that actually, or, or the type of attacks that happen against uh, web applications. Now, this is more not DDoS attacks, but actually trying to break the application or whatever, uh, or rather take over the machine, things like that. They found that SQL injection accounts for 49% of all uh, attacks that Akamai blocked. Uh, as we would expect, SQL injection is the most popular way to take over an application or uh, break into it or steal its database. Uh, and then you have local file inclusion, which is about 40%. This is where you trick 
a PHP script or some other uh, language into running a file you uploaded, like, you know, most websites will let you upload a JPEG uh, of, you know, your profile picture or something. And uh, if that file happens to actually be, you know, some source code uploaded, just name.jpg, and then you can cause it to read that file and try to run it as a PHP script, then you can run your own code in the application. And once you're doing that, you know, that's remote code injection. You can tell it to do whatever you want it to do. That'll come in very important in a minute when we talk about the next story. In our next story. Uh, but anyway, so yeah. SQL injection is basically half of all attacks, and local file inclusion is the next 40%, uh, leaving 6% for cross-site scripting and then uh, you know, 2% for a bunch of the other little stuff. Okay. So LFI, local file injection, that's what LFI stands for in this graph? Local file inclusion. Inclusion. Yeah. Okay. So basically, this causes an application to read some file that's on the hard drive of the server and right. run it. Like the JPEGs. Uh, yeah. Or, or some of them, it can, you know, some of them are as simple as getting a web application to spit out ETC passwords so that you can just see what <laughs> users exist on the machine so that you can target your, your uh, SSH brute forcing against them. <laughs> it's like, oh, look, there's a user named Andrew. Let's, you know, uh, I bet his password is Andrew <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was, uh, that's an interesting report with uh, more details than we would normally get. Yeah, it's like a 40-page report. You should, people should definitely go, uh, you know, read it and uh, see some of the other stuff. And like Chris said, there's a bunch of really fancy graphs in there. Mm-hmm. And Alan's got the direct link in the show notes. So you don't have to give them your second child in order to get access to the PDF. Let's take a moment and talk about DigitalOcean. For a sponsor right here on the TechSnap program, DigitalOcean.com, and use our promo code SNAPOcean. That's one word, lowercase, and you apply it to your account. Even with an existing account, if you've never taken advantage of our promo code, you might give it a shot. You get a $10 credit. And the reason why I mention this is I want to encourage you to play around with DigitalOcean because it's a platform that is extremely unique in how easy it is to get started, how quick it is to do so, and how low it costs. So I'll, I'll give you an example. That $10 credit when you use the promo code SNAPOcean, you could get a $5 rig, so you could run it for free for two months for free. But check this out. Look at their pricing page and look at the hourly pricing. Three cents an hour for two gigs of RAM, a two-core processor, 40 gigabit. 40 gigabyte SSD, and 3 terabytes of transfer. Now they have great connections, 40 gigabit E connections coming into the hypervisors. The machines Mm -hmm. are all SSD-based, regardless of which one you get. They also have high memory, if you want that, like up to 220-something gigabytes of RAM. They have block storage. You can attach up to 16 terabytes, if you want, of SSD-based storage. And, of course, you can run FreeBSD on there, Fedora, Debian, CentOS, CoreOS, and Ubuntu. They have a really nice interface to manage all of it. It makes it easy to do things like manage your DNS, your SSH key, set up multiple droplets, backup, snapshot templates, all of the things you need for peace of mind. So much simpler. Even just for things like before I do a WordPress update, why not just do a snapshot? I also, I think if you if you really want to cook with gas, like I just, I love this idea. I don't know if I have it actively implemented anywhere. I'll make that caveat. But I have heard from multiple listeners who use the API at DigitalOcean, and they tie it in with their package manager, and they can actually have their package manager create a snapshot before they do a big upgrade. It creates a DigitalOcean snapshot of their droplet. It, it, it then does the package upgrade, and they can revert right back if they want. The API is so nice because tools like that are already created because the API is great. It's straightforward. People just jumped all over it. And you can look at it too, and then to top all of it off, like like – like the delicious sprinkles on top of whatever you like sprinkles on top of, 
They have fantastic documentation and tutorials. And look at this one. Well, with the snapshots. Oh, yeah. Uh, because they have floating IP addresses, you can have your web application have use that static floating IP address and move it between machines. So when you want to do the upgrade, you can snapshot the machine as it is working, uh, then make a new machine out of that snapshot. Totally. Do the upgrade on it, and then move your IP address over to that, run your application off the upgraded one, Keep the other one around for a little bit, and oh, it didn't work. Flip the IP back. You're back instantly on the other one. Will you try to fix it, or maybe throw that away and start off the snapshot again and do the upgrade differently and try it and then move the IP address over, find out, well, and, and be able to bounce back and forth. That's so cool. Uh, here's a by the way. Here's it's a like, good temporarily. I need a second machine. Boom. Done. Yeah, just a little extra oomph. Uh, I just saw they uh, posted this 20 hours ago. How to install Git on FreeBSD 11. There's a new tutorial up at the DigitalOcean site. You can check them out. You can play around with FreeBSD. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean to get a $10 credit and try doing something useful. You know, if you really want to play around with ZFS, you could also do a FreeBSD droplet, start play- messing around with the block storage, mm-hmm. and think about the flexibility you, which you could do there. You could really play around with some pretty cool stuff. And with our $10 credit, you could probably get in for days and days and days, really bang it around and really get your hands mm-hmm. on it. DigitalOcean.com. Yeah. Use uh, our promo code SNAPOcean. You can, you can get the actual, like, droplet local storage on ZFS as well. So if you spin up, when you create an image of FreeBSD, it has the different versions, but also there'll be like 11.0, which will use UFS, or 11.0 ZFS, uh, which will have ZFS even for the base system so that you can take advantage of snapshotting the whole uh, thing without having to actually use DigitalOcean's dro- uh, snapshotting thing. Yeah, use the file system to, level uh, stuff. Reboot and so on. This will allow you to you know snapshot files and be able to restore one individual file uh, from a snapshot, whereas the DigitalOcean one is, you know, you'd have to clone the snapshot into a new virtual machine, start it up, and then copy the file off or whatever. Plus, yeah, it's a great way to get to play with ZFS. Uh, yeah, th- for me too. Like, I could play in configurations I could never financially actually do with physical hardware here at the studio, hmm. but I could, I could, with up to sixteen terabytes of block storage, I can slice and dice that. Well, that, that's per uh, block device, so I think you can create multiple of those. Yeah. So you can just be like, yeah, I need. I just for an hour or two, I just want to play with 100 terabytes. <laughs> yeah. So thanks, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring this very Turkey edition of the TechSnap program. So let's talk about our our next story, Mr. Jude. So uh, I have no idea what this even is. Is your server Ninjinxed? What is this? Ninjinxed. Ninjinxed. Okay. Ninjinxed. Right. Jinxed like jinx. You owe me a coat. Coke. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly like that. Okay. Tell me about this. Yeah. So fancy website they flaw. have. Yes. And it turns out there's a flaw in the way Debian and therefore Ubuntu package Nginx, the web server, dun, dun. which can allow your server to be compromised, like entirely rooted and owned. But, but, but nobody uses Ubuntu or Nginx, so this is yeah. not a big deal. <laughs> so the flaw <laughs> allows an attacker who has managed to gain control of a web application, like say WordPress or you know, if that, that local file inclusion stuff we just talked about or, you know, basically if you can uh, get the ability to run commands as the user that the application runs as, so this is, you know, whether it's Python, Ruby, Node, uh, PHP, whatever, but if you manage to actually get the application to run a couple of commands for you, then you can take over the entire machine. Mm. So normally, if you manage to compromise a WordPress, all you can do is you know, modify files that the triple W dash data user has access to, uh, which depending on WordPress is set up, that could be locked down. So they can't do anything except for, you know, the uploads directory. Uh, or it could be 
uh, slightly more open so that WordPress can upgrade itself when it's running or whatever. But then uh, all you can do is really screw up that one WordPress. Uh, you're not supposed to be able to root the box. But small mistake on Debian's part and watch what happens. <laughs> oh, So uh, Nginx web server uh, packaging on Debian-based distributions such as Debian and Ubuntu was found to create log directories with insecure permissions, which can be exploited by a malicious local attacker to escalate their privilege from the Nginx web user, www-data, to root. Uh, so the vulnerability can be easily exploited by attackers who have managed to compromise a web application hosted on an Nginx server and gain access to the www data account as it would hmm. uh, allow them to escalate the privilege further to root access and fully compromise the system. Uh-huh. So uh, the attack flow works like this. First, you have to compromise a web application. Okay. So wait two days, new WordPress vulnerability, go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Check. Then you uh, have to run this exploit that they've designed as the www data user which is pretty easy. So what you do, basically, you uh, create a file slash tmp slash privesclib, so privilege escalation library, uh, which is basically a text file with a couple of lines of C code in it. Then you run the command to compile that, which you can do as a regular unprivileged user. Then you install your own low-privileged shell. So you could just copy bin bash, or you could uh, you know, put your own exploit in the directory or whatever, but you create slash tmp nginx root sh. So this will be the root shell. So right now, it's just a regular, uh, it could be a binary or a text file, and it's what, it, you know, if you try to run it, you'll run it as you, the triple W-data user, and you won't be able to do much. Now, you take advantage of the permission mistake that was made on the var log nginx directory. So this directory is made writable by the triple W-data user, where it should probably only be writable by root. So what you do is you go to the var log nginx directory and you delete the nginx-error.log and replace it with a symlink to etc ld.so.preload. This is a configuration file that tells the linker what libraries it should preload before actually going to the list of libraries that an application wants to use and using them. It's a way to basically override functionality built into programs to make them use different libraries. Uh, normally that file probably doesn't even exist. Uh, but you create varlog uh, var nginx uh, error.log as a symlink to that file. Now you have to wait for nginx to be restarted or for log rotate to tell nginx to reopen its log files. This probably happens at least once a day, if not more. Right? Uh, some of the, sometimes log rotate will look for uh, the log being over a certain size. So you can maybe speed it up by doing a whole bunch of requests to the website. Uh, for invalid URLs, so they get logged to the error log or something. But anyway, you just wait a little bit, and then Nginx uh, gets restarted or rehashed, and it will then try to create that uh, error log file, because it doesn't currently exist. And it will end up following that symlink and creating the file, rather than calling you know var log nginx nginx-error.log, it will create etc ld.so.preload. And because the children of Nginx need to be able to write to the log file, the permissions will be such that the triple W data user can write to it. Uh, so Nginx's process's root is creating this file and then changing the permissions so that its children can write to it, which is what you want to happen because normally your var log Nginx directory is owned by root and not writable by anybody else. Uh, and then Nginx will create the log file in there and change the permissions so that its children can write to the log. But the uh, var log Nginx directory 
set up by the Debian package is owned by the triple W data user, which then can erase the error log and simulate it to something. So anyway, so now we have this empty file, uh, etc. Uh, ld.so.preload that's writable by the triple W data user. So you, the attacker, now add a line to that file that says, you know, uh, slash tmp slash privesklib.so, the, the library we compiled earlier. So now any program that runs is going to load this library and try to run whatever code is in it uh, before it actually finishes its own uh, whatever it's going to do. So then we find a set UID binary like like say sudo right so now sudo because it's set uid when you run it it's always run as root um and then sudo contains in it the logic that decides whether it wants to let you do stuff as root or not right so it reads this config file and says hey triple w dash data is not on the sudo list piss off um but it's already too late because when sudo loaded and executed that privilege privilege escalation library the code in there found TMP nginx root sh, ch uh, modded it so that it's set UID root, uh, or you know change the ownership so it's owned by root and set it to be set UID. So now anybody who runs that binary, which is allowed to be run by anybody now because they set the permissions to four seven seven seven, when they run that binary, it won't run as their user. It will run as the user who owns the file, which is root. So now all the attacker has to do as triple dash data is run tmp nginx root sh and they'll be running bin dash as root and then they can do whatever they want on the server it's now their server not your server anymore yeah <laughs> so yeah that's a fairly straightforward uh, attack and you know it doesn't happen on most other operating systems because uh the permissions would be set correctly yeah it was just a simple mistake like that didn't we just uh, recently talk about a packaging problem that I think it might have been this one just without all the detail. Ah, okay. Yeah. Jeez, yeah, it seemed familiar to me as well. Um, yeah. Now, separately, I almost wonder if Nginx, also, as kind of a defense against this, should open its log files with the flag nofollow that will, so it won't follow symbolic links so that this can't happen. Hmm. But I, I can also see people using a symlink somewhere in the path for the log file as a legitimate thing. I suppose so. You know? Yeah. But yeah, at the same it. time, it kind of seems like, yeah, it shouldn't be allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so if I am on Debian or Ubuntu right now, mm-hmm. aside from making sure that all of my web applications are fully up to date, is there anything else you would advise for right. people? Uh, so this has been fixed already. So if you're okay. on Debian, you want to make Just sure have you have patch. the Nginx. Uh, sadly, they're, apparently their latest version of Nginx is 1.6.2. 2-5 Deb AU3 So basically if you get the latest version of the package from their stable repo or whatever, uh, they've fixed the package to set the permissions correctly on the directory Okay uh, For Ubuntu 14.04 it's uh, Nginx 1.4.6 dash 1 Ubuntu 3.6 Yeah, I'm looking at that Yeah um, for 16.04, it's Nginx 1.10.0-0 Ubuntu 0.16.04.3. So if you're on 16, uh, if you're on 14.10, you're not getting a patch. For some reason, you have 
Uh, well, 1410s out of support, right? right? right. It's not long-term support, and right. it's from two years ago. So that would be, I know, but I'm just saying there are people that had it deployed. So if you're on that version, this is, and you have a, this is now an issue that's not going to get. Well, yeah, you also haven't been getting any security updates for Nginx, and you should probably upgrade to like 1604. Stop it. Also, uh, isn't 1204 still supported? I think 1204 uh, still gets back. like last month. I don't know. I thought it was still getting, but I can't keep it straight. I don't, see, I, I I don't it, see a patch for it. Maybe they don't have the problem right. either. Uh, yeah, it's possible that theirs is old enough. <laughs> um, but I'm pretty sure 12.04 would have expired like so many months after 16.04 came out. Right? They only support you back four no, years. No, no. You're going to make me Google it. You're going to make me Google it. Yes. Ubuntu support. Right, right. The, the list of all the fixed versions is in the show notes or on the original web page. All right. All right. So here also, we go. So you want to make sure whatever directory Nginx is putting its log files in, the ownership on that should be root and nobody other than root should be able to write to it. Nginx will create the files as root and then set the permission so that the, the oh. child servers can actually write to it. So here you go, right there. So 1204 is supported until mid 27, almost almost 2018. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that, but I don't see I don't see it listed as fixed. So I'm just I was I don't know I don't know. Yeah, I think it might just be old enough that they hadn't made the mistake. Yeah, yeah. So I was wondering. Uh, so disturbing that apparently this has been around since 14, 2014. Also, that's a super old version of Nginx. Yeah. Uh, so just make sure that your logged directory is not writable by the WW data user. That's really yep. yeah. Okay, so uh, good, good one, Alan. That's I think that was the one that we sort of discussed. So it's good to get the details on it. Tell you about yeah, something before else. Before it was very vague. TechSnap.ting.com. That's where you go to support the show and get a twenty-five dollar credit off your first device or in service if you bring a device. They support CDMA and GSM, so you might be able to because they got that's a that covers a lot of devices. This is what I this is what I want you to take away though. Ting is mobile that makes sense. You just pay for what you use. It's six dollars for the line, and then your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. You go to techsnap.ting.com and you get twenty five dollars in credit. It'll likely pay for more than your first month if you bring a device. If you ever get stuck, or if you want to give this to friends or family and don't want to have to play tech support, they have incredibly good customer service. They don't make you go through a big tree. You get to talk to an actual human being. And you can just pop in the SIM card to a device you already have, get on the Ting network, get set up. The SIM card's only 9 bucks, or you can get a device directly from them. And then you'll have great tools to manage it. And there could be some deals this week. In fact, Ting has an early Black Friday deal. It looks like you can get the Moto G4 Play for $124. It's a pretty capable compact phone with nice, clean Android that gets some updates. And, in fact, I think it – I don't know if it got the latest OS, but it gets the security updates. Uh, and – and no contract. You only pay for what you use. It's unlocked. You just use it. It's yours. Nice. TechSnap.ting.com is where you go. I also like their feature phone. They also have the Ansatel One Touch Fling for $20 right now. If you just want like a, just a dead simple feature phone, that's a great way to go. The Home Phone Connect is back. That's really nice. You can route your cell services, I think, right? This is route your cell services over the internet like a... a, a uh, get your, oh, no, I'm not bad. I'm glad I checked. This is kind of cool. It's got a little screen on there, too. Get your old landline home phone onto the cellular network. So then you can you can yeah. use an old you touchstone know, if, phone. If, if, yeah. If, you're, if your mom doesn't want a cell phone, she likes her phone that hangs on the wall in the kitchen. But, you know, if you're going to be talking uh, on the phone, that's, if you're going to be on the phone for a bit, sometimes those old landlines, you know, they were nice. They were a little more comfortable. Yeah, big, hefty handset that's yeah. actually designed to hold instead of, like, Instead of in your pocket. they don't have a battery that gets really hot. That's the thing. They just, like, sweat the side of your face. Yeah, exactly. 
And you can also go all the way up to the Pixel. If you want to put the Pixel on the Ting network, you can do it. Uh, I have the I have the iPhone on there. I think that's a great way to go too because then I don't worry about Google at all. It's up to you though because it's just you get the service, you get the device, and you make you make it happen. It's just minutes, messages, and megabytes. Six dollars for the line. You want ten lines? It's six dollars for each one. It's so economical and it's so sweet, especially if you have Wi-Fi like at work or at home and you're on Wi-Fi a lot. Then I I. I, I by, by pinning my Spotify songs and downloading my podcast, my data usage is zilch. I love it. I have Google Photos set to back up when I'm on Wi-Fi, too, so I don't bother blowing up cellular data with that. And everything works fantastic. With, for three devices, my bill's almost always under 40 bucks. Textnet.tv.com. Well, you know, I wish I had something like that here because my data usage in a given month is maybe 100 megabytes. It's like nothing. Uh, but we had a scheduled Internet outage here. Uh, in order to rearrange some fiber and so on. So I tethered my laptop to my phone. Uh, so I'd be able to IRC and talk to the person that was at the data center uh, doing the jiggering of the fiber and so on. It was just more convenient than text messaging because we both like having a keyboard t- type. Uh, but Windows decided to do a bunch of crap and I ended up using like 400 megabytes of data. <laughs> uh, now, you know, with my carrier, that. Uh, luckily my cap uh, I have 500 megabytes a month that I pay for even though I don't use it most times but with Ting it would mean that I would only pay for that for the one month and then I would go back to paying for just my 100 megabytes that I actually use or whatever Yeah. so you know if you have this one time spike you're not there's no overage charges or anything you just get you just pay for what it is yeah yeah very much so and the more you use the cheaper it gets yeah and uh, so if you use no data you pay for no data uh, you would have paid yes. You would have paid ten bucks. That's mm-hmm. how much you would have paid. If uh, oh, I pay a lot month. more than that for it right now, and I pay for five hundred megabytes, I never let it use. Yeah, I'm looking at the Ting thing. Uh, ten bucks is what you is, is is all you would have been for the entire month. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so check them out, techsnap.ting.com. You can try out the savings calculator and see how much you would save, too. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Again, uh, you can get uh, our discount and support the show at techsnap.ting.com. Thank you, Ting, for sponsoring TechSnap program. Okay, so moving on to our next news story. Hacking 27% of the web via WordPress auto update. That is... Well, that's a tension grabber. That's what that is. <laughs> Tell me so this it. is from uh, WordFence, which is a company that basically makes software to protect your WordPress. And uh, basically they found a flaw with the way that the WordPress auto-update system works such that they could compromise the WordPress auto-update server and make it distribute malware instead of WordPress updates and make it break the auto-update feature so all the infected WordPresses would stop auto-updating and so on. So yeah, this will be an interesting story. So they say, uh, at WordFence, uh, we continually look for security vulnerabilities in the third-party plugins and themes that are widely used by the WordPress community. Thank goodness. In addition to this research, we regularly examine WordPress core and the related WordPress.org systems. Recently, we discovered a major vulnerability that could have caused a mass compromise of the majority of all WordPress sites. The vulnerability we described below may have allowed an attacker to use the WordPress auto-update function which is turned on by default to deploy malware to up to 27% of all of the websites in the world at once. Wow. This is theoretical. Uh, uh, well, they found a way to do it. They just didn't actually do it. Do it. it. Okay. All right. <laughs> so it's, okay. It's, it's not that theoretical. Okay. Uh, if this bug hadn't been fixed, somebody okay. could have done this. Okay. It would have taken a bit of work, but somebody definitely could have done this. So the server that uh, API.wordpress.org has... Uh, 
is a, has an important role in the WordPress ecosystem. It releases automatic updates to WordPress websites. Every WordPress installation makes a request to this server about once an hour to check for plugins, themes, or WordPress core updates. Once an hour seems slightly frequent, honestly, but it must be a pretty beefy system to handle 27% of the web checking in every hour. And it better be a small ping, too. Like, that's... Yeah. Uh, the response from this server contains information about newer versions that may be available, including if the plugin theme record needs to be updated automatically. It also includes a URL to download and install the software updates. If someone were to compromise this server, they could. Uh, it would allow the attacker to supply their own URL to download and install software to WordPress websites automatically. This provides a way for an attacker to mass compromise WordPress websites through the auto-update mechanism supplied by api.wordpress.org. Uh, this is all possible because WordPress itself provides no signature verification of the software being installed. It will trust any URL returned by the auto-update API and any package that is supplied. So, um, you know, WordPress pings this API and um, just blindly downloads whatever that API sends back. So that in itself seems like a problem because someone could man in middle this and compromise some WordPresses. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm guessing that's not really their uh, threat model, but it seems like they should be doing some kind of signature verification. Mm. Mm. Now, that's a bit hard to do because uh, they obviously don't want to pull in like GPG as a dependency or something, right? Anyway, uh, going on in the article to say, we described the technical details of a serious security vulnerability that we uncovered earlier this year that could compromise API.wordpress.org. We reported this vulnerability to the WordPress team via HackerOne, the bug bounty system. Uh, they fixed the vulnerability within a few hours of acknowledging the report. They've also awarded WordFence, uh, WordFence's lead developer, Matt Berry, a bounty for discovering and reporting the issue. So api.wordpress.org has a GitHub webhook that allows WordPress core developers to sync their code to the WordPress.org SVN repository. Uh, this allows them to use GitHub as their source code repository. Then, when they commit a change to GitHub, it reaches uh, GitHub reaches out and hits a URL at api.wordpress.org, which then triggers a process on api.wordpress.org that will download that code and uh, push out the update. So the URL that uh, GitHub contacts at api.wordpress.org is called a webhook and is written in PHP. The PHP in this webhook is open source and can be found in the repository. We analyzed this code and found a vulnerability that could allow an attacker to execute their own code on api.wordpress.org and gain access to api.wordpress.org. Uh, this is called remote code execution, or RCE. Uh, so, yeah, there's actually kind of two problems here. Okay. Uh, so if we can bypass the webhook authentication mechanism, uh, so the webhook does actually check that it, the message it's getting is really from GitHub and not somebody pretending to be GitHub. But if you're able to get around that, uh, there's post parameters uh, from uh, the GitHub project URL that are passed unescaped to shell exec, which allows us to execute shell commands on api.wordpress.org. So if you can get by the authentication system, you just put whatever command you want in and it ends up running it on the shell without running the escape stuff. So, you know, while the command is actually trying to run is like SVN update and then the URL or whatever, if you just put a semicolon and then some other command, it will run that. So, you know, you could just put 
the command you I want the URL you want to download is semicolon rm minus rf slash, right? And then the SVN command will run without a URL and just throw an error or whatever, and then it will immediately run your rm command as whatever user uh, PHP is running as. Uh, and you know you could then compromise the server and and put other files in place or make it check out from your GitHub repo where you have a different set of code put in or whatever you want to do. So there is built-in security uh, in the system. GitHub takes the JSON data they're about to send, hashes it plus a shared secret token, um, and submits the hash along with the data. On the receiving side, they take all the JSON and their copy of the shared secret, hash those together, and compare the two hashes. Okay. Only if they match does it go forward. So this means only it will only accept uh, JSON from somebody else who knows the secret password. Uh, and ideally that's going to be just api.wordpress.com and github nobody else knows it so nobody else can fake this out there's a small catch though github uses SHA-1 to generate the hash which is probably not great but it's more than enough in this case Okay. Uh, and supplies the signature in a header so there's xhub signature SHA-1 equals the hash the webhook extracts both the algorithm in this case SHA-1 and the hash to verify the signature the vulnerability here lies in the fact that the code will use the hash function supplied by the client, in this case GitHub. But it also means it will use the one supplied by an attacker. That means that whether it's GitHub or uh, an attacker hitting the webhook, the person hitting the webhook gets to specify which hashing algorithm is used to verify the authenticity of the message. So instead of SHA-1, I could use something else that maybe is more uh, prone to collisions. Hmm. The challenge here is to somehow fool the webhook into thinking that we know the shared secret that only GitHub knows. This means we need to send a hash with our message that checks out, that, that when they hash with, the same, with their secret password, our JSON hashed with a fake secret password comes out to the same hash, a collision. Uh, the chances of that with SHA-1 are really remote, but we'll get into that. Anyway, uh, in other words, it appears to be a hash of the message that uh, we're sending and the secret value that only api.wordpress.org and GitHub know, the shared secret, but really it's just a hash collision. Mm. Uh, as we pointed out above, the webhook lets us choose our own hashing algorithm. So PHP provides a number of non-cryptographically secure hashing algorithms like CRC32, FNB32, and Adler32, which generate 32-bit hashes versus the expected 160-bit hash from SHA-1 or, say, 256 from SHA-256 and so on. Uh, these hashing functions are checksums that are designed to catch data transmission errors and uh, be highly performant with large inputs. Right? Like CRC32 isn't about making sure that the message hasn't been changed. It's about detecting like a single bit got screwed up and, and knowing that, not... It's not meant for cryptographic uh, security. It's meant to just check uh, and make sure that the message didn't get slightly scrambled uh, during transmission. Uh, they're not meant to provide the security. So instead of having to brute force a 160-bit hash, which would be you know 1.46 times 10 with 48 zeros after it, so just imagine a number of 48 zeros. It's a really big number, right? You only have to brute force 32 bits, which is only 4 billion possibilities, which is still kind of a lot, but a lot easier than, uh, you know, 48 zeros. (laughs) 
Of these weak algorithms, the one that stood out the most was Adler32, because it is actually just two 16-bit hashing functions concatenated together. Um, not only are the total number of hashes limited, you know, uh, 16 bits is only 65,000 combinations, uh, but there's also significant non-uniformity in the hash space. So with a, a proper cryptographic hash, like, say, SHA-256, if you provide uh, a very, very large number of inputs and graph how many of them start with each of the you know, different bits, you'll see that it's relatively uniform. Uh, basically, it gets spread out very evenly. Right? If, if, if you divide up into buckets based on like the first character of the hash or the first three characters of the hash, or depending on how many different hashes you have, uh, and graph them, it'd be a, a relatively straight line. There'd be maybe a little bit of variance, but in general... Um, as you change the input, it's going to be evenly distributed across all the buckets. With Adler32, it's not. Uh, this results in many hashes being uh, the same, even though they are supplied with different inputs. The distribution of possible checksum values is similar to rolling a dice, where 7 is the most likely outcome, the median value, and the uh, possibility of rolling any value in that range would work its way out from the median value. So it's kind of like a, a, a pyramid shape. Right? There's the most common value in the middle, and then one on either side of that, hmm. plus one or minus one, is hmm. the second highest, and then down and away. So meaning that uh, the probability of rolling a 2 or a 12 is really low, whereas rolling a 7 is going to happen a lot. Kind of that spread. Uh, so using this, uh, they were able to develop a proof of concept that they supplied in the report. They have all the source code and everything. That utilizes this non-uniformity to create a profile of the most common significant bits in each 16-bit hash generated by the Adler32 algorithm. Using this, we were able to reduce the amount of requests that they would have to make to the API from 2 to the power of 32, which is 4 billion. Um, although, you know, they, they might find it on the third try, but the chances that are, you know, it, they would probably have to do at least half the key space before they would have a good chance of finding the, the one that worked. Uh, so instead of having to do billions of requests... Uh, it looks like it will take approximately 100,000 to 400,000 requests hmm. uh, until they uh, stumble on a collision and trick the API.wordpress.org into thinking, hey, check out this code. It's definitely legitimate. Okay. Wow. When it's not. Wow. And that's yeah. not a lot. Uh, yeah, it's like 100,000 to 400,000 is kind of a lot. But if you figure, well, no, no, we I mean, do it doesn't, it doesn't check every second. hour. Right. Uh, yeah, so you know, you it'd be relatively easy to hide, you know, maybe uh, a thousand requests an hour, and then you're only talking about four hundred hours. Or you know, if you bump that up to say a thousand requests uh, a second, that'll only take four hundred seconds to go through them all. Yeah, <laughs> and we know the API can handle something load like that because it's got every WordPress checking in once an hour, meaning it's already handling thousands of requests a second. So you'd be able to check a whole bunch of values relatively quickly. Uh, which you might want to do rather than spreading it out uh, because maybe it will raise an alarm, uh, but if you can do all of them in, within, in less than 10 minutes, then you know they won't have time to answer the alarm before you've already compromised everything. So there's, you know, they left the details of actually doing the attack up to people, but they, they're getting that fixed anyway. Anyway, they say, this is a far more manageable number of guesses that we need uh, to send in to the webhook, uh, which can be made over the course of a few hours. Once web, the webhook uh, allows the request, 
The attack executes the shell command on api.wordpress.org, which gives us access to the underlying operating system, and we can do whatever we want. You know, basically, it can do a reverse shell out and give you access to whatever you could possibly want. Uh, from there, an attacker could conceivably create their own update for all WordPress websites and distribute a backdoor and other malicious code onto all those websites uh, and disable subsequent auto-updates so that WordPress uh, would lose the ability to deploy a fix, it's meaning that every WordPress would have to be manually fixed uh, instead of having them auto-update. And we all know that the reason they invented this auto-update thing is because WordPress was not being updated on most of these machines, and it was causing a big problem, right? Uh, so, so we uh, confidentially reported this vulnerability on September 2nd uh, to Automatic, which is, I guess, the team that's behind the auto-update thing. And they pushed a fix uh, to the code, code repositories on September 7th. Presumably, the same fix had been deployed in production before they uh, pushed it to the code repository. They say, uh, we still consider api.wordpress.org as a single point of failure when distributing WordPress uh, core plugin and theme updates. We've made attempts to start a conversation with the members of the automatic security team about improving the security posture of the automatic update system, but we have not yet received a response. It definitely seems like they should be doing a couple of things to make sure that, uh, A, that you know it's not a man-in-the-middle attack and that they're actually, in the end, getting the, uh, the updates are being checked for authenticity so that I can't just fool your WordPress into accepting my URL. Now I'm all worried it's a WordPress site, and I feel like now i got to go through another like paranoia yeah. round. That's a that's a really good amount. That's a really good set of work from WordFence. Like that's some seriously valuable, like hats off, good work kind of stuff. That's going to help improve the security of the WordPress community. So congratulations, thanks WordPress, or uh, WordFence, I should say. You know, because a lot of times these these companies out there are kind of bogus. It sounds like they're actually doing some real work. So that's pretty cool. Any other thoughts on that story, Mister Jude? Uh. Nope, that's it for now. Well, if you're a WordPress admin or curious about more, Alan has notes in the show notes. Just go to go over to Jupiter Broadcasting and look for episode 294 of the TechSnap program. And he has it all copiously noted right there, like a gentleman. I'll tell you about iX Systems, iXSystems.com slash TechSnap, our, uh, our last sponsor this week on the show. iX Systems is the builders of these incredible systems for your workload, whether it be just a small office or up to an incredible scale. They're built around these fantastic Intel processors at ixsystems.com slash techsnap. You go there to learn more and support the page. Then go check out their new fancy front page. Their new website's looking real good. And I noticed for the holidays, they've also posted a free NAS mini beta 2. Uh, and they have a, a blog post here with pictures now, I note. Ever since I complained, they started adding the pictures. <laughs> yeah, they have a, uh, they had one. Did you, did you get to play with the one they had at MeetBSD? Yeah, I did. And I also watched uh, Jordan's uh, uh, presentation, too. I missed that one. I was doing Let's Encrypt stuff for the FreeBSD cluster team. It was it was pretty neat uh, because uh, he VPNed into his office where he had a system attached to a, a system with, like, I don't know, 45 disks or something. I mean, it was a lot of disks. It was obviously some pretty I- cool IX gear. And uh, he just started graphically tossing hard drives around like a maniac, Alan, creating ZFS wizardry. Uh, and it was pretty cool. And uh, you can read more about uh, FreeNAS 10 
uh, over at the IX blog. Start by going to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. They also have their white paper there where you can learn more about it and sort of grease the wheels up the chain. This is some great hardware. They're going to work with you to build the, the exact rig you need for your job. It's it's actually the only time I've worked with a hardware company where I've honestly, legitimately, it, not just not just found the sales process to be good, but actually appreciated the sales process. Mm-hmm. Honest to God, because well, you're talking to an engineer who likes to build servers. Yeah, it's a good it's it's a it's a it's a two way dialogue, and it's it's extremely refreshing, and it's just the beginning of the relationship with iX Systems. iXSystems.com/slash/techsnap. That's the place to go to support the show. Grab the white paper and learn more. iXSystems.com/slash/techsnap. Incredible rigs built around those awesome Intel processors. Mm-hmm. So. Speaking of things that are fancy and awesome, uh, a little beard tells me that there is a new episode of the BSD Now show, uh, episode 169, scheduling your net BSD. Yes. Uh, they found, uh, one of the stories is an interesting uh, bug they found in the net BSD uh, CPU scheduler where uh, it sometimes doesn't, because of a rounding error, might not schedule enough work on the last CPU in your system, which can be a big deal if you only have two CPUs. Huh? <laughs> huh? Oh, well, sure. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, and also it, it, it mostly seems to come up in VMs because you know most people's machines have four more CPUs uh, with hyperthreading and everything now. Uh, but if you create a VM with only two CPUs, it's like why is the second CPU not doing very much work? Are you, like, you also whoops. do you also talk about uh, your uh, Let's Encrypt work that you just mentioned a minute ago? Uh, well, the work done by Peter Wem, but yes, we explain. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, okay. Basically, what I was doing was learning that from him ah. uh, and how to do it. Uh, because we're all in the same room, so it was easy to do. Uh, but yeah, so there's uh, some uh, cool Let's Encrypt stuff, how we actually use it at freebsd.org for all the, the machines that the cluster team manages. Uh, what other stories do we do? Uh, there's one about production-ready software that's really good. Ted Unix is, uh, always hmm. writes good blog posts. Yeah. And uh, lots of Building other a cost-effective 100-gigabit firewall? Yes, uh, yeah. How would you like to have a firewall that can push 100 gigabits a second? <laughs> All right, first I need a connection, but yes. I would like that and the connection, please. Uh, just well, to, uh, this is internal. This oh, is for okay. a supercomputer. Uh, oh, oh, oh. Good, good, good. All right, just leave it right there. That's a perfect tease. Episode 169 of the BSD Now program. Go grab it now because we're about halfway done. And I know your turkey day won't be complete with more Jude in your face. And it's a good point to go download the HD version and all its brilliance. And with that said, let's do the TechSnap feedback. Sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. You can also start a thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. Now, Scott writes in with our first question this week, Alan, and it's about network tests. He says, We've currently been experiencing intermittent internet connectivity issues. Oh, man, that sounds. He, so he puts it so nicely, but you know that's frustrating. My ISP refuses to believe it's their network or their modem. Besides using ping, what other tools can I use to test connectivity over time, since it, again, is intermittent, to prove that it's not on my network? I understand that I'll have to bypass all my network equipment and connect directly to their modem to prove this. Thanks for your help, Scott. What do you think, Alan? Yeah, um, there's a couple of things. Um, <clears throat> now, for as an interactive tool, MTR, or Matt's TraceRev, is uh, really useful. It's basically... Uh, like running traceroute, but it does it constantly. 
So you basically get the latest, the average, the worst, the best, et cetera, ping for each hop uh, at, through the trace route, and it can show when the route changes over time. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily give you good logs, although it can it can give you good details on packet loss when it uh, comes and goes and the percentage, but it doesn't necessarily tell you exactly when it starts and stops and so on. So for this, I like to use something uh, like Nagios or Cacti or something and graph ping and packet loss and maybe number of hops and things like that over time so that you can see, oh, it's stable, and then you see at exactly this time it does this. And then... Eventually, sometimes you can even see patterns. Uh, like I noticed that connecting to our one server in Chicago, starting at this time every day of the week, uh, yeah. the, you know, as prime time starts, the ping would get worse, and then it would get better after prime time ends. And then it'd be even worse on Thursdays, and really bad on Friday, but not on Saturday or Sunday. And Monday was okay, and then Tuesday would get bad, and Wednesday worse, Thursday worse, Friday worse. Earlier this year, we were having big problems with our Comcast connection. We were trying to figure out the source of it. And so by running ping tests, that would, what we were testing wasn't a loss of connectivity. So we weren't looking for drop packets. What we were looking for was an increase in response time. So that way we could try to figure out where. So what we would do is we started at our modem out. And we figured out by using trace path and trace route where the hops of our, the best we could, figure out where the next hops were in our ISP's network. And we set up smoke, ping, and other tools. I, I forget what tool. Uh, Rikai, if you're listening, maybe you could drop the tool you used to do from your desktop. But smoke, ping, and there's other tools that would measure the, the, uh, the, mi- the milliseconds response time. And as, of, as they went up, it would correspond to issues we would have with connectivity. And then we were able to give the ISP graphs and say, well, we don't know. We can't say it's us or you for sure. But here's what we see from our end. And when you're talking to a technician and they start seeing ping response times like that on a graph, that, you know, gets their, that gets their wheels turning in their head. Um, and so I know chat room also, there's probably uh, ping plotter. That's one Rika I used was ping plotter. And I used smoke ping, uh, which I liked both of those a lot. So you can check that. Ping Plotter, I think, runs under Windows. So if you just want to put it from like on a, on a Windows laptop or something like that and just hook it up right there, uh, that could be just a really quick way to do it, Scott. So those are some things to try. Remember, to consider testing not just packet loss, but uh, whole packet response time. So Samuel writes in with what I think might be a success story. He says he fixed a slow FreeNAS issue. Five months ago, in episode 269, he wrote in about having trouble with file transfers just stopping on him. I forgot to mention one important thing that will be revealed in just a little bit. After trying everything that Alan suggested and getting acceptable results, replacing the old 8-port Linksys Gigabit switch with a retired HP Business Class 24-port switch, then going off and reading up on Oracle's documentation on ZFS, I decided to look at the hardware of the server. I removed all the RAM except for one stick of 4 gigabytes. ECC DDR3. I booted it up and it ran a file transfer. It was slow at 54 megabits, but it, it never stopped even after 50 gigs of transfer. So now I removed the known good RAM and stuck uh, it uh, stuck in its brother and got the same results. Uh, I think I think what he's saying is I put one of the other sticks in. Uh, and it was also good. Yeah. Uh, hold on. He got the same results. He had five sticks of RAM ranging in size of all tests. Not even one would post. So he ended up having to test his RAM. I'm trying to like skim it down here because I just realized it's like mm-hmm. nine paragraphs. So he says he's put in 16 gigabytes of 1600 megahertz RAM and now he's happy with 120 megabits transfer and he hasn't had any trouble since. So it looks like he had some RAM that was 133 megahertz and some RAM that was 1600 megahertz. And now he's all standardized with 16 gigs of 1600 megahertz RAM. That's yeah, really awesome. Yeah, mixing it should just all downclock to the same right. speed. I'm guessing his problem was actually one of the six maybe is bad. Yeah. 
But that's an interesting thing that I don't know if we considered bad RAM when we were trying to troubleshoot a slow transfer. No, but I guess if it, if it was hanging the whole machine, then that is a yeah. real possibility. Yeah. Uh, I had a machine that was causing all kinds of weird stuff. Like we ran Yum and it would seg fault. I was like, what? It was just doing a bunch of stuff on this uh, video transcoding server we had just rented. And we were very confused. And then I uh, fired up the management interface and booted Memtest. And uh, within 10 minutes, like, oh, bad RAM all over the place. I'm like, oh. And then set that to the ISP with a screenshot and everything. I'm like, yep, we replaced both sticks of RAM. And uh, your machine worked pretty fine now. All right. Good to know. And I'm glad we got Samuel's follow-up. Now. We move on to Alex. He has his obligatory ZFS question slash feature request. I love it. Uh, he says, hey, Alan and Chris, uh, thanks for your dedication. Uh, I enjoy your content every single week. I wonder if these two features for ZFS are under development or if they are just impossible to realize. Hmm. Let's get you chewing on this. Adding a single new drive to an existing pool. Adding a fourth drive to an existing RAID Z1. This could give more well, Okay, so adding a new drive to a pool is possible, but... Not to a VDAP. So a pool is made up of virtual devices. Virtual devices can be a single hard drive, a mirror of two or three or four or five disks, or RAID Z of the various things, or it can be a log device or a cache device. So adding an additional drive you can do, but that has no redundancy and that would be bad. What you're asking about is adding a drive to an existing RAID Z. Not possible. Uh, Mostly because the way RAID Z works is it lays out the blocks based on the width of the number of drives. So adding an extra one just doesn't work. It would require like rewriting everything. But because of the way things are checksummed, you can't just change the 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 location of it without rewriting all the data. Um, so yeah, if you want to be able to just add drives like two at a time, then mirrors are your best bet uh, for flexibility. Uh, otherwise, you have to add whole RAID Zs at a time. Uh, there's probably not going to be a way to fix that anytime soon. They are adding the ability to remove drives, but that only applies to single disks or mirrors. Then you want a part two? Ah, yes, go ahead. With part so, two. Uh, what about rebalancing the file system when adding additional storage devices? Alan already pointed out that new drives will be used more until they have filled into the same degree, resulting in a loss of throughput. It'd be nice to have command for just, you know, doing this, rebalancing the drives. I think SuicideFS, I mean, ButterFS has something called ButterFS Balance. And then he uh, makes a joke at me. Yeah, and I think uh, HammerFS and other files have something like that. There was originally a design for that uh, that would basically be able to do both these features called block point rewrite. But it turns out it's really complicated to do. Uh, And it's basically there's no one that's currently working on it because it's uh, an especially gnarly problem. Um, for the rebalancing, it's not that big of a deal anymore because the way the new write, uh, uh, the new allocation system works in very, very new ZFS that just came out, it changed away from trying to forcibly rebalance the loads to try to get to, um, the drives getting to 90% full at the same time. It now instead allocates work to the drives as fast as it will do it to give you the mm. best write speed. Okay. So even your half-full drives will still take uh, a good amount of the writes and you won't lose that much bandwidth. Um, but because the emptier, newer, less fragmented drives will be faster, they will get more of the data uh, until eventually they get full enough that they slow down and, and balance with the other one. So 
the balancing is less of a performance issue than it used to be um, with the new uh, allocation system that you'll find in like FreeBSD 11 and newer. I, th- I think it's funny, you know, we didn't even mean for all these to be ZFS questions. It's just how they kind of ended up. We do have a bunch of emails right now that I think we're going to try to bust through at some point. So uh, if your question came in and we don't have it answered, it's not that we're only doing ZFS emails anymore. It's just that's what our Thanksgiving batch was. That's what the Thanksgiving batch was, and that's what we got to. Uh, but this next one's more, well, I think it's more about versatility of ZFS and less about specific backups, but I'll, well, we'll get to that. So Dave writes in. He says, hi, Chris and Alan. Oh, by the way, uh, I should have said – I wanted to point out our last writer was from Austria. Always cool. Uh, but uh, Dave writes in. He says, hi, Chris and Alan. I was just listening to last 444 where Chris mentioned that Antigross Installer now has quite a bit of ZFS trickery. Since I had hosted – I had hosed my machine running Antigross, I decided to wipe it and maybe give it a try. Since I also have a free NAS that I use for storage and backup, is it possible to replicate the ZFS pool from my Anagros install uh, to the ZFS on my free NAS server? If Anagros gets hosed again, how would I go about restoring the replica back to the disk in my laptop? Uh, he says it's going to be a mirror of two hundred two. I'm sorry, a mirror of yes. two two fifty six gig SSDs. Yes, this is one of the great things about ZFS is that, yes, you can do replication between different operating systems, and even ZFS replication by default works with all versions of ZFS. Uh, if you do a ZFS send uh, without any extra flags, it will make a stream that's compatible with like even just like old V28 versions of ZFS. So you don't have to worry about, oh, the FreeNAS is a newer version of ZFS that has a couple more features. The replication still works between them. Now, if both support some of those features, you can enable them. I think there's like minus E for embedded blocks and minus capital L for large blocks and a couple of extra settings. Uh, but if by default, if you don't do any of that, ZFS send stream is compatible with all versions. Um, Oracle apparently has broken their compatibility off in their version, starting with like V34 or something, uh, sadly. But um, every version of uh, ZFS you will find an open source thing. Uh, the ZFS send stream will be compatible with any of them. So you can go different versions and it's not going to cause you any problems. Okay. Wow, that's great. Uh, so yeah, you'll be able to do that. Now, for restoring, um, TrueOS has a built-in support in their installer. For Antigros, likely what you would do is you would do a, a new install uh, so that or just lay out. Those, you basically create the partitions and set up ZFS, uh, and then it can just sit there empty, or you could do a complete install, whichever way, and then just replicate it back like you sent it. Uh, and then it would just overwrite whatever. So yeah, uh, partition your drives, uh, create the empty ZFS pool, and then replicate it from the FreeNAS back into the Antigros. You can likely do this from a, a live CD or the installer. Uh, or, you know, if that's being difficult, you could literally just do a new install and then ZFS receive it back on top of it. So Anagros has been uh, working on this, uh, and I think it's still – I don't – I would not advise using this yet. In testing mm-hmm. here, uh, the Beard ran into some issues, but they've been working on their installer for a full graphical setup to do um, mm-hmm. different sophisticated uh, ZFS configurations. One of the things that's kind of nice about it is um, it is very um, – Informational. So if you don't know what a term is, it has like a lot of information buttons next to the terms and it brings up definitions and what they do. So yeah, it's, a really cool, it's a really cool it's a really cool way to to kind of, you know, for a desktop installer, it's a cool way to do that. But I don't actually know if I'd say it's production ready yet. So you might consider setting up just your root and your basic your basic 
disk configuration and then configuring ZFS after installation or experiment with it and see if it works for you. I mean, I guess if you're doing installation, it's not like you're going to lose data because you're already blowing the machine away. Uh, but yeah, just well, keep ZFS, you're not going to lose data unless you do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a surprise batch of uh, – wow. Mm-hmm. We do have a bunch of other emails that uh, we will try to get to that uh, we'll mix it up probably next week. But honestly, you guys are just doing so many cool different things with your uh, drive configurations out there. It's kind of neat to hear them all. So it's not like I really mind either. And we could always get some more questions and mix and mix it up. If you've got something you'd like to add to the show, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the dropdown. You can also participate in the subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. But with the emails all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still wanted to go over them, give you some links to follow up on your own, read a little more after the show. And some of them came from different various sources on the internet, like our subreddit. I don't know if any of them did it did this week, actually. Uh, probably not, because they're all from me this week. Yeah, all from Alan this week. So let's start with that. Uh, I have a Toyota Corolla. That's a great headline. All right. Good story. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a, a one from the author of Curl, you know, the little library that oh, everybody yeah, yeah. uses for, uh, you know, the command line tool and library everybody uses for everything. Oh, now it's Because it's a great funny. way to interact with URLs. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's got at the bottom of this page a bunch of interesting emails he's been getting lately. You want to just read like the top one there? Uh, hello, sir. I have the Avalon 2016 regarding the audio player. When... Why why they why their delay between audio and video when connect throw Bluetooth and how to fix it? Here's another one. Um, hello, I'm using a new Ford Mondetto, the navigation system with the SD card FMTT19449-FC Europe F4. I can read the card, but I cannot write on it. I want to add the card some POIs. Can you help me to do it? What is what is yeah. this? So, uh, in, in most of these in-car entertainment systems nowadays, uh, because they're using open source software like um, QNX or Linux or something, or who knows what the operating system is, but they have a bunch of software on there. You know, the software for the nav system maybe uses curl to download updates or something. They have a little about page where they have to put all the open source licenses, right? Because you know, if you look at the yep. BSD licenses, like you have to reproduce this copyright statement in the documentation for your product. So uh, just like we found uh, on an episode of BSD Now, if you're sitting in one of the new Jeeps and you go into the, there's an about screen in the touch screen and you go to about and it's got a list of all the copyrights and you see all these names I recognize as people I work with on the BSD projects. (laughs) Um, Well, uh, people are finding the curl one and it contains an email address, not just a name. And so they're emailing him and their questions about the thing, not understanding that. Amazing. He didn't make the in-car entertainment software. He makes this library that everybody uses. Hello, I have the Toyota Corolla with the multimedia system that you have. It's copyright. Any advice on how to use its GPS? Now I can't use it or see the maps, and I want to know how to add the Hebrew language. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's, that's funny. He's like, how do I even respond to this? He says, I have to say I rarely respond at all. I can't believe he ever responds. I'm surprised he still checks it, too. Um, all right, next story in the roundup, there's another malicious link floating around that will cause any iOS device to freeze and then require a hard reset. I think, is it a video, Ellen? Is that what it is? Yeah, so it's actually, you know, like the other week when we talked about there's a JPEG that can infect your iOS device. Well, now there's one that, uh, a video link that will freeze your device. What's going on here? That's crazy. 
Hmm, buggy software. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Yeah. Uh, huh. I'm looking at it. I mean, that's funny. Well, uh, I suppose if I shouldn't play it, just in case it would uh, crash somebody's uh, iPhone. Uh, the, uh, here's another one. Walmart tackles food safety with a trial of the blockchain. This is an yes, interesting so using one. blockchain to, to store the data on the history of every device or every uh, bit of food so that if there's a food recall on you know a specific – so basically when they get reports from a bunch of their customers that they got sick off something they bought last week, yeah. they can correlate – between all those customers and quickly find out what was the one thing they all bought. Oh, broccoli, salmonella, problem solved, whatever. Okay. Like, okay. Using the blockchain to, to keep this record of uh, stuff so that they can handle food call, recalls better. Now, anyway, all the details are there on the Bloomberg article. Yeah. So now, now and it looks like maybe a paper about attacking the Washington D.C. Internet voting system. Just the yes. just the thing to talk about right after an election. Yeah. Now, what was interesting <laughs> with this one is they also hacked the security cameras in the data center. So if you go oh, down a couple of pages near okay. the bottom, okay, uh, they were able to tell that the admins hadn't figured out that they had hacked it yet by looking at their body language and facial expressions. And then they have pictures of what they look like That's after so they were told funny. that they had been hacked. That is so funny. After learning of the attack. Yeah, you can see they do look a little more. Or not really. I don't know. It didn't seem funny. Anyway, uh, just the fact that they had the pictures of this, uh, I thought made it quite an interesting that is. one. Getting yeah, access to the security camera is uh, funny. Yeah, it was um, a tweet went by and it was just like the best thing I've read in a, in a you know vulnerability assessment in a long time it's like we could tell the admins were slightly upset when they found out yeah yeah uh you know what else has people slightly upset uh an uber portal leaked names phone numbers and email addresses and unique identifiers in the uber central portal that doesn't sound good yeah so it's uh the uber central portal was set up for businesses to be able to facilitate uh getting rides for their customers so i guess this is like so the hotel can call your uber for you or whatever hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I called an Uber for Noah while he was in town, you know, so that way I could get him from point A to point B. Yep. Uh, and things of that nature. And, uh, yeah, apparently you could get people's information. Yeah. The unique you. idea of all Uber, of all the Uber users, if, uh, if you wanted it, all Uber users, that does seem like a big deal. And you can do bulk enumeration. That does seem like a really big deal. So we'll have a link in the show notes. Information of every Uber user. So, uh, how about this one? Mapping the attack methodology. To do controls? What's this, Alan? Yes. What is this? Uh, PowerShell so this some shenanigans? Uh, this is looking at a recent malware attack against a, a company and trying to figure out where you could break it. Mm-hmm. So it turns out in this one, uh, it was a malicious Word doc being mailed around. So in this case, the execution chain is they get the email, they open the Word doc, the Word doc has a macro that forks off command.exe, which runs some PowerShell, which downloads and runs the malware. So when the user clicks on the attachment, it runs a macro that kicks off PowerShell or kicks off command slash C PowerShell, you know, new dash object system.net.webclient, download file, bad URL, store it to, you know, temp directory scsnsys.exe and then start it. As we can see, uh, the PowerShell, when it does a download, it doesn't put a user agent in. It doesn't say, hey, I'm PowerShell. So we can't <laughs> easily just block outbound stuff saying, hey there. don't let any PowerShells do downloads. Okay. PowerShell! So, 
Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm kind of surprised it doesn't say Microsoft or PowerShell yeah. somewhere in the user agency. Yeah. But, yeah. It just has nothing, so, as far as we yeah. know? Map, huh. Yeah. It's just viewing a very, very basic constructed uh, HTTP request. Um, so this is to map out the controls. We could do a couple of different things. So stopping delivery of the message, uh, you have five options uh, ordered based on money and complexity. Number one is hold detachments for X number of hours so that the antivirus can catch up. So any email with an attachment won't actually be delivered until it's been sitting around for a couple hours and maybe the virus scanner knows that it's a virus by then. Right? Yeah. Or you can, you know, correlate, hey, why is this similar, different file, but with the same checksum being sent to all these different users? Uh, other options are convert the file from Word to, say, PDF, because then it won't have a macro in it anymore. But the content will still maybe look right. Um, you could mangle the macro in the file so that it doesn't work. You could sandbox the attachment before delivery so that it won't be able to to do anything like that. Or you could prevent macros from running by maybe using a, a group policy object or something. Uh, so then your other options are disabling macros via group policy, blocking users from being able to use command.exe at all, like say use app locker uh, policy to block command.exe. Uh, number four is prevent PowerShell from running any unsigned scripts. So only scripts that have been signed by your domain controller will actually be allowed to run. Problem is, it turns out there's a lot of way to bypass that. So that's probably not going to help you that much. Uh, prevent downloading the malware, right? Set up your firewall or whatever to sinkhole or proxy uh, the request so that anything going to these known bad URLs will be blocked. Problem is, new bad URLs show up constantly. So you're constantly going to be playing whack-a-mole rather than proactively stopping anything. Or... Uh, prevent malware from running from the temporary directory. So, you know, set up app locker so that anything in the temp directory uh, won't be able to be run. Problem is, you know, most installers and a lot of other things do that. But then again, your end users at an enterprise probably shouldn't be running random installers anyway. But anyway. Hmm. Uh, so it says, uh, this exercise will have you uh, prepare the answers and, you know, be able to prevent issues in the future. Uh, you know, maybe... Figure out that some of these would take maybe 10 hours of work or maybe cost X hundred dollars to set up or whatever. So our next story is kind of fun because uh, we have a listener of the show who helps manage the Coca-Cola data center infrastructures. And Coca-Cola has an unbelievable amount of servers. I would not have guessed how many servers are required to run a Coke company, but they're a big company. So this headline's great. Coca-Cola doesn't keep its secret formula in the cloud. They got a lot of data in the cloud, but not the so secret formula. everything to the cloud, but the, the secret formula, no, that's, that's not going into the cloud. Now, when they say cloud, though, I think they mean their own built cloud because they have... It might be part of the private cloud, but I think, I think in particular there's a policy saying that their secret formula will never go in a public cloud. This sounds like marketing to me. Their secret formula. Yeah. <laughs> it's only in the head it's of like a few of our founders. Sugar water. Yeah, yeah. Although nobody does uh, really get it quite right. There is that. Well, you know, when you make that comment about the, that, it really reminded me of a uh, recent Brian Cantrell talk that actually it was the day after the U.S. election. He ditched his regular keynote that he was going to do and did a different one. Hmm. And in particular, what he said is, well, people didn't realize in the 90s when uh, Walmart was – you know, killing off all the mom and pop stores hmm. is that they weren't actually a retail company. They were a big data company. They figured out that, you know, retail is just a s statistics problem, right? And they, they figured out by, by having all this data and knowing where everything goes and how to do stuff, they, they would make more money. Hmm. You know, it's the opposite of, if you remember when we did the, the postmortem on Target Canada, when Target tried to yep. get to Canada and, and botched it all because their software was crap. Yeah, It's like, 
imagine if you were the opposite of that and you could make sure that the stuff was always on the shelf, but you never had too much of it sitting around in a warehouse and that you analyze right. the traffic patterns of right. people and figure out if you put these things together, people buy them right. more. Yeah. Put this there and, you know. That makes sense. The reverse of that situation is a good way to put it. Some, like just randomly, if you've ever been walking through a, a Walmart that's not very busy or well, they're restocking, you'll see these like pieces of paper taped to a shelf that explains how the shelf must be laid out, what items must be where and how, you know. I've never seen that. You know, there's been a lot of study into just the idea of how neatly they stock the shelves affects whether people want to buy certain products or not. Hmm. That makes sense. A visually appealing yeah. is important. You know, uh, it's just random things that bound around in my head sometimes. It's like, I kind of wanted to just like just play with that kind of data science stuff. It's like convince a grocery store to give me all their sales data and be able to do stuff with it. Or uh, then I was like, hmm, what if you could do some kind of tiered subscription-based grocery store thing? <laughs> so it's like figure out the type of the things that people buy every week and have them agree to a subscription where they guarantee they'll buy it every week. And if they do, each week they continue to do so, it gets cheaper. Amazon does, not the cheaper part, but they do have like subscribe and save. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's probably that. But you want it for I like just, grocery items too, which would be, I guess you can do some grocery items on Amazon. Yeah. It's like, you know, uh, well, especially if you live where you live. Where I live, Amazon doesn't sell anything. <laughs> this is an interesting one. Kaspersky OS, their own... Built up from the ground up, they say, based on a microkernel, not Linux so OS based. Maybe it's based on Minix? I don't know. Sure. The but only, yeah, thing, the only detail they, they say, do give you is it's not Linux. That's the only thing yeah. they say. <laughs> they, they say very specifically it didn't go anywhere near Linux. Not even the slightest smell is the word they use. <laughs> uh, but basically, it's, it's not an OS you run on your computer. It's for switches and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, Kaspersky uh, OS. And, uh, you know. But that's always been the dream of a microkernel. Apparently, they spent eight years developing it. Comes with uh, a sticker of Putin. If it's not open source, I'm really not interested in it. Yeah, but what if they include a sticker of Putin? You know, like with a shirt off or something. No. No? Oh. This no. is a quick one. Oracle is gobbling up DYN, didn't After, you know, that DDoS oh. they had just like last month? Yeah, well, I think it was more when the news came out, hey, it looks like uh, Twitter and Reddit and all these other big websites all host their DNS with Dyn. Oracle's like, we'd like to get paid by all the big internet companies. Let's do that. Yeah, maybe, right? It, was, it turned out to be good marketing for, for Dyn. And, you know, <laughs> as we saw, Twitter's already uh, switched to having their DNS across two different providers mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm, a denial of service attack not specifically targeting Twitter is unlikely to take out Twitter anymore. So I guess on Monday it came out that there was a, uh, a vulnerability at NTP. The uh, code's been patched and released. But it uh, sounds like this could be, uh, on a holiday week, this could be a hard one for people to get in. Hmm. You know? You definitely want to go and patch that up yeah. real quick now. Yeah. So special exploits in the wild now. Special TechSnap Bulletin because the exploits are live. They found the vulnerability on June 24th. Um, and so people may be already working on stuff to exploit it. Uh, with a malformed packet at that. So, mm-hmm. All right. How about this one? Uh, InPage, zero day, used in tax against... Big banks in page publishing software used by apparently primarily uh, Arabic speaking nations. I did not realize that. Yep. Uh, so like Urdu, Pashtun, and Arabic. So that's like uh, Pakistan. Uh, you know. Yeah. They. I guess they used an exploit in the software to launch attacks against the financial institutions and government agencies in the region. 
Mm-hmm. More than 10 million in-page users in Pakistan and India alone. So there's all. So I've I've heard of it. So I, I mean, there's also a significant amount they say here in the U.S., the U.K., mm-hmm. across Europe. Kaspersky Labs is the ones that also found this vulnerability. Speaking of Kaspersky OS, yep. that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Using publishing software to break into the bank, and they're using command and control servers. It's, it looks like they found those. They've been compromising servers. To, this has been going on for a little bit. It looks like that is a particular nasty one. So uh, if you know anyone that uses InPage, take a look at that. We'll have a link in the roundup because it looks like uh, it looks like that gets. Uh, Basically, once you have it installed, they take over your whole machine using the Microsoft OLE system. <laughs> that Microsoft OLE system has getting has been getting banged on now since the day they implemented it in Windows. <laughs> I swear, I swear that has been the cause of so many problems. All right, that brings us to the end of this week's TechSnap. If you'd like to submit stories to our roundup or maybe further up in the, in the show, TechSnap.reddit.com is the place to submit them. He's at Alan Jude on Twitter. I'm at Chris LAS. You can follow the network at Jupiter Signal. You can watch us live on Thursdays. Every now and then we have to adjust the time, but we're almost always live on Thursdays over at JBLive.tv. And you can get it converted to your local time at JupiterBroadcasting.com slash calendar. And last but not least, you can just not worry about any of that crap. And just subscribe to the RSS feed, and then you just get every show when we release it every single week. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>